Hey, uh, my name is Reed. I am one of the staff persons here at CCF. I have been on staff now for 13 years, everybody. In the year of our Lord, 2008 was my first uh, year on staff, and I've been preaching since then and doing some other things. Um, my family is here. I have a family. My wonderful and lovely wife, Leanne, is back there, and I have three boys who are lovely and wonderful in their own ways. They're 11, 9, and 7. Uh, don't be shy. You can say hi to them. They love soccer. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's really good to be with you. Um, we're doing a series on the crucifixion this semester. And so uh, by way of introduction this morning, I just have some things to say about that. <clears throat> also, as a di further disclaimer, we keep telling you that you're going to get Bible. And I promise you, you're going to get Bible. There's minimal Bible this morning because mostly we're just kind of setting up what we're going to be doing. Uh, but please don't be scared. We will drown you in scripture. Starting next week, Keeve, you're up, right? On the gospel of Matthew, Mark. Keeve's giving you Mark next Sunday, so be here. Uh, yeah, so this is, I have a thing with titling my sermons. I just, I don't know. It's been a thing I've done for a while. They get several titles, so if you're new and I list off like four titles, it is weird, but you didn't mishear me. Uh, this is uh, this is a backyard crucifixion, or we preach a thing that happened, or when we can't say anything, we say everything, or the unnecessary inevitability. I've been thinking about Jesus being executed in my backyard. Uh, I've been thinking about Jesus being executed in my backyard because uh, while the crucifixion is a central moment of our faith, um, the, the thing is, if you're like me, uh, you've, you've thought and heard and read and sung about it so much in the past that it's maybe gotten further away from you over time. It's gotten further away from me over time. Uh, like two spouses who have resorted to just mere cohabitation after long years together. Uh, it's like we've become so familiar that we've drifted apart. Uh, and I've been imagining Jesus being executed in my backyard because... Truth be told, I've never been to Golgotha, where he was crucified. I have never, like, seen the horizon from that hilltop. I've never felt the heat on my skin or the ground on my feet. And so, in some ways, the crucifixion has always been kind of legendary for me. Almost like it didn't happen except as this thing that I imagine. Uh, and it, it's, a, it's a thing who's, like, implications I, I wonder about, uh, but whose flesh and blood details I have a hard time paying mind to. Um, but Paul said in 1 Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified. <clears throat> Not something about Christ crucified. We preach this thing that happened. And so I wonder how can it mean all that it could to me if I only ever think of it just as an idea or a concept so I've been imagining Jesus being executed in my backyard um, because I know what it's like in my backyard. I know where the shadows are at certain times of the day. I know how long the garden hose will stretch before it runs out. I know how the kids' voices sound through the windows when I hear them play. Uh, and I've been imagining in my backyard this place that I know, this thing that I'm trying to know more. I've been imagining the executioner showing up beforehand with the post hole digger digging out the spot where the cross will stand. I can imagine the dirt breaking and lifting just there between the garage and the trampoline, sweat dripping from his forehead uh, with each drive of the shovel in this humid 
Missouri summer. And I've been thinking not just of the sweat dripping from his forehead, but of the blood dripping from the crucified, like actual blood slipping, tangling down through his hair, hanging in front of his face, falling down and mixing with that late summer grass. And it's long enough to need mowing, but it's brown and dead enough to make you think that it's not really worth it. I've been thinking about how the sounds of the crucified prisoners, uh, their screams, how they might blend in or stand out amidst the drone of the cicadas, the occasional throaty rumble of a truck going down Cottage Grove. And I've been thinking about what kind of crowd of people would gather to give witness to Jesus being crucified in my backyard. Would it be people that I know? People that I don't know? What sorts of folks would file down my side yard into the backyard to see this man tortured and brought to death? Folks from the Rotary Club? Acquaintances from the Y, the soccer team? We preach Christ crucified, he says. Not an atonement theory about the meaning of Christ's crucifixion. We preach the thing itself. And he goes on to say, this is actually the wisdom of God, is this thing that happened, this man who was tortured and executed. And when I put that event in a place that I know, I, I start to get a sense of the normalness of it. It was a thing that happened on an afternoon somewhere a long time ago on this planet. And yet when I think about how that's kind of normal, it also gives me then a sense of the mystery of it, the strangeness of preaching it and being transformed by it, this thing that happened still carrying on so many centuries later. Because those people from the Rotary Club heading back to their trucks when Jesus finally went unresponsive, like as they're walking back up my side yard to my driveway where their cars are parked, would they understand right away that this backyard crucifixion meant something? Would they understand that it would come to be seen as the single event that would most shape and divide the mind and the heart of the world uh, for all time to come? Would they guess that in 2,000 years, this afternoon in my backyard would be the epicenter of one of the world's greatest religions? Like, would they know that as they walked away? Would they have any idea that through it, God was doing anything redemptive at all? Or would they go home hungry, ready for dinner, if their stomachs could handle it, and try to and maybe successfully just forget about it over the weeks to come? The earliest bits of the New Testament were written decades, at least decades, after the crucifixion, which means that Peter and James and John, they were thinking, and they were wrestling, and they were dreaming for long years, long years, decades, about what in particular that execution of that Jew in that year meant for them and for you and for me and for the world. And I'm not sure that it was just totally obvious to Paul or Peter or John, like the day after Jesus' tragic death, what that death was really all about. Like, I don't think it was just magic that somehow they knew. It had to be interpreted and thought through, which is part of what we're going to be doing this semester, thinking through it. And, and we believe that 
through the Spirit of God, they searched the scriptures and they found all of these connections and they felt deep, holy convictions that, yes, this death that happened on this afternoon all those years ago, this was the way that God was going to put the world right, <laughs> whatever in the world that might mean. They discovered and they were inspired to start drawing out the truth that somehow this thing that happened this one afternoon was for you and for me, for sin and for the world. It would be like if someone wrote an op-ed in the Atlantic tomorrow claiming that in the assassination of JFK, which none of you were alive for, except for maybe some of my people back here, 1963 was when that happened. It would be like if somebody wrote an op-ed tomorrow saying that in JFK's assassination, God had somehow done something to change the world and even you, and they had just figured this out. That's crazy, right? Can we admit that that would be crazy? But here's the thing. People around the world haven't for decades and centuries been having powerful experiences with the assassination of JFK. In it, they have not been drawn to the love and mercy of God. They have not felt a piercing assurance that God will somehow set everything right because of the death of JFK. Or indeed, that God has actually already done it and now is waiting for the world to catch up. Not many people seem to have had their lives upended and reoriented and drastically transformed by the assassination of JFK or by anything that anyone has written about that assassination. But this assassination of Jesus, the crucifixion, the execution, call it what you want, from 2,000 years ago, it still just refuses to go away. Frederick Buechner wrote this about the death of Jesus. He said, it was only afterward that people began to understand why his death was necessary, although nobody has ever explained it very well, and Jesus himself seems never to have tried. When Jesus died, something happened in the lives of certain people that made explanations as unnecessary as they were inevitable, and it's gone on happening ever since. This sermon series is about that inevitability. Some of us, uh, maybe many of us, I hope many of us, have had an experience with the crucified Christ, like what Beekner is talking about. And if you're like me, you've had a transfixing, transformative experience with the crucifixion of Christ. When that happens, it makes you feel very strongly as though you must say something, even though you suspect that whatever you say will ultimately be insufficient to the task. We preach Christ crucified, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, not we preach this noble truth, or we preach this spirit of democracy and freedom, or we preach the fulfillment of this desire, or we preach this ancient wisdom or good advice. No, we preach a thing that happened and a particularly gruesome thing it was. Comparatively, the symbol of Christianity, it's pretty macabre. Somebody said it would be like walking around now with a, uh, an electric chair, like an, an emblem of a, an electric chair hanging around your neck. Other religions have more inspiring symbols. The crescent moon and the star, <clears throat> the lotus flower, the stars and the stripes, the rainbow, the clenched fist, the hammer and the sickle. They're symbols of light, beauty, 
power, wisdom, solidarity, but Christianity has as its symbol this instrument of death, a really horrific one, an executioner's tool. But we preach this apparently macabre thing because we and many others have been powerfully encountered and transformed by it, often in ways that we can't really explain. Like try telling someone what it's meant for you, especially without resorting to parroting what others have told you and see how your words trip and fall short of the finish line. That's what happens, and, and that's okay. That's okay, because this is, after all, we believe the most significant historical event of all time, the center of all that is real, the pivotal moment of God's dealings with people, so your words should fall short. It's okay. This is why we have metaphors. Any English majors out there like me? Take something that you've experienced, but you don't really know how to say it, say it like straight on. You put it up against something that you do know, something concrete to help us understand the significance. This is what a metaphor is. It's like with God. Because we cannot know or say his name directly, uh, we give him every name. We call him Father, even though he's not produced literal offspring. Because something about him is caring, providing, instructive. We call him judge, even though he doesn't have a gavel or a courtroom. Because something about him reveals what is true and decides what is right. This is how metaphors operate. There's the thing itself, which we, can get at, which we can't get at directly. And then there's all that we say about it. And the crucifixion is the same way. There's something about the thing itself that we can't say exactly what it is. And so we say all kinds of things that it's like. It's why people have preached it and represented it and pondered it in myriad ways for centuries. Sculptures, paintings, poems, films, stories, essays, historical accounts. In some ways, the human race has had kind of an obsession with trying to, how can I say what this means? The unfortunate thing <clears throat> is that some of us have had the impression that it means one thing only. We've come to believe <clears throat> that the cross is about this singular message. You were guilty, and now you're cleared of charges, exonerated, justified, let off the hook, declared innocent, released from sentencing. You were in danger of the punishment of hell, and because of the cross, you now get the reward of heaven. I'm good. If that's all it means, then it is literally one-dimensional. We've only got one metaphor for it. Like, what if you only had one name for God? I used to feel uh, that looking for someone to evangelize, uh, it, it was like looking for a needle in a haystack. Like I had this message to tell somebody that like you don't have to bear your guilt. Um, if I could just find somebody who was burdened by the guilt of their sin. Or if I couldn't find somebody who was feeling that, it's my job to make them feel that. Make them feel really guilty and then offer them my gospel solution. That's salesmanship, folks. Manufacture a problem, guess what? I've got the perfect thing for that. Hear me. We all bear guilt. I'm not denying that. No doubt. No doubt the cross clears us of that. The issue uh, is that not everyone, that's, that's not everyone's main problem. That's not their main issue as they experience it, even if you think it should be. 
Like they may instead be crippled by a sense that their life is just really meaningless or by a deep sense of like estrangement from themselves, from others around them, from God, from the world. So does it make sense for me to go up to somebody who says, well, I'm depressed because my life is meaningless and be like, well, Jesus forgives you of the wrong things you've done. It's not that it's not true. It's just that it falls flat. Is this the only story that we have to tell? To borrow an analogy from Scott McKnight, to go around telling every person we encounter that the gospel is that their sins are forgiven so that they can go to heaven is like playing a round of golf using only a driver for every shot. You've got a golf bag, folks. You've got a bunch of clubs. Hopefully this semester we can learn how to use them because that's the good news about our good news. We can, there are all kinds of metaphors in the scripture. Like I'm not just making this up that we can use to talk about the cross and we would do well to learn them. Like a PGA Tour golfer would do well to know how to use a sand wedge when he's in a trap. How can I tell you what this means? Many ways. Like when the Bible talks of justification, the one that we're used to, that's a legal metaphor. You're imagining a courtroom and a judge, even though there's no literal courtroom and judge. And it speaks of us as guilty offenders and we need to have the charges against us dropped. This is such good news for the ones among us who can't stand under the weight of our own condemning consciences or others who would condemn us. To know that despite our wrongdoing, God does not condemn us. That is great news. But when the Bible talks about like ransom or redemption, that's not justification. That's not the same metaphor. That's not a courtroom. That's like the slave market. Redemption, it's a metaphor about slave trade. And it speaks to us being delivered from slavery, not just to the sin that we do, but the power of sin that enslaves us, that's outside of us. It's not the same as our being complicit with sin. And this is good news that a lot of us need to hear who feel like evil and oppression, they just have the last word in the world that we live in, in our families, in our societies, in ourselves. The cross has something to say to that. And when the Bible talks of like adoption, families, that's a family metaphor. And it speaks of the gatekeepers of God's like dinner table. They've been tossed out. Everybody's got a spot at the meal. This is good news for those of us who feel cast out, who feel misunderstood, lonely and estranged. Not who just feel that, but who are that. When the Bible talks about things like priesthood and kingdoms and kingship, that's a royal metaphor that has to do with purpose and calling. And this is great news for those of us who have given our lives to meaningless things or who believe that there's nothing meaningful to give it to. The cross has something to do with all of these things, with God's plan to restore, to make right what's wrong with the world and with us. So, so think about the crucifixion this semester as a diamond with many facets. And all the light of the truth of God's salvation, and, and hear me, when I say salvation, I am not just talking about going to heaven. I'm not primarily talking about going to heaven. I'm talking about his kingdom come here as in heaven, how he is setting the whole world right, making it right and good now. That's what I'm talking about when I say salvation. And the light of that salvation shines through this diamond of the crucifixion. And our job is to turn it, not just to look at one face only, but to turn it, to see how that light brilliantly shines through each face, 
It's true that we're criminals in need of exoneration. It's true that we're rebels in need of citizenship. It's also true that we're slaves in need of redemption, hostages in need of ransom, kings and queens who have sold our crowns for a trinket and we're in need of being restored to our rightful rule, orphans in need of a family and more. So here's what I'm hoping for this semester. That we who call ourselves Christians will get better at telling our own story. Even as we get better at perceiving the stories of others. So that, God help us, we can affectionately and shrewdly see and say where they intersect. If we come to have a broader and deeper and more colorful, think the light, the spectrum through the gym, a more colorful story to tell, then maybe God's kingdom will come to Truman as in heaven, maybe even through us. That's what all of these sermons that we're going to hear, sermons on redemption and ransom and justification and priesthood, sermons from the passion narratives, word studies about things that we've maybe become a little too familiar with, language that we don't think about anymore. That's what all of these sermons are going to be for, ultimately, I hope. <clears throat> and finally, my other hope it's not just that we come to understand and tell the story, but to live it, to embody it, to incarnate it. <clears throat> if you're like me, it's all too easy uh, for, for you to fall into just talking about the cross as a concept. It's an interesting idea for those who are interested in theology and for everybody else, it's whatever. Maybe even it's the most interesting idea to you in all the world, but if that's all that remains, just an interesting idea, it won't have power. We have to remember uh, that redemption, adoption, deliverance, image, vocation, these aren't theories that we need to analyze. Fleming Rutledge, an Episcopal minister that I like, she said, none of the symbols, images, motifs, and themes about the, about the crucifixion work in any logical way, either as analogies or as theories to explain what God and Christ is doing on the cross. In the final analysis, she says, specialized theological knowledge can take us only so far. We need to know the story. And N.T. Wright said, Jesus died for our sins, not so that we could sort out abstract ideas, but so that we, having been put right, could become part of God's plan to put his whole world right. Amen. Our hope this semester, then, is that our conviction about the crucifixion will grow deeper, even as our imaginations and our vocabularies for testifying to it grow broader and as our lives come to just embody it more and more. Because this campus, we, you, me, we have so many needs and these needs are so diverse and there's so much that needs to be set right in so many ways. And our belief is that the crucifixion and the resurrection somehow resolve them. Not, not like a magic wand, but as a doorway into the life that God has for us. We can't say mechanically exactly how it works, uh, but we can believe that it works. And through all these different images and stories, we can plumb the depths and we can come to know him and ourselves uh, more truly, more richly, we hope, we pray. And so now, uh, may we turn the diamond of the crucifixion. 
And may we see the light of God's salvation gleaming through every facet of it. And may we come to see and embrace that in Christ we are forgiven of sin, set free from the power of sin, brought home into the family of God, restored as God's image bearers. May we come to understand the riches of each of these truths, how they're both distinct and connected. And may we come finally to be people of the cross, people of the resurrection, carrying for the love of God and enemy and neighbor his death and life with us as we go. Amen.